Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West. Professor Peter Ralph is Executive Director of the Climate Change Cluster in the Faculty of Science at University of Technology, Sydney, and is partnering with Australian surf brand Piping Hot to develop textiles made from seaweed for surfwear. Nature-derived alternatives for the fashion industry has the potential to revolutionise products and vastly reduce their impact on the oceans. Apologies for a little bit of building noise in the background to some of my questions. I started by asking Peter where his relationship with the ocean started. I suppose my relationship with the ocean started as a kid. So I, I grew up in French's Forest. I, I surfed freshwater as a kid, then as a kind of a teenager. When I was at uni, uh, I, was, I was down at DY. That was my, my local break. Um, and so I've always um, grown up. My dad was a lifesaver. So, so yeah, the, the, the coast and the ocean's always been in, in the system. But I suppose I hit uni and um, I, I did a degree, undergraduate degree in environmental sciences. I didn't do marine biology. But then from a PhD, I, um, I absolutely went from a passion in, in coastal systems. And so I studied photosynthesis of, of um, seagrasses. So kind of trying at that stage, it was trying to work out how to protect coastal ecosystems, how to protect them from degradation. Climate change wasn't an issue back then. Um, yeah, I spent probably the next 10, 15 years of my career working in marine systems that were vulnerable to, to climate change and, and human damage. So I worked with corals. I did coral bleaching. I worked in Antarctica looking at um, the algae that grows on the bottom of, of sea ice and understanding the productivity of that. So there was always photosynthesis in the background, but it was how marine systems were damaged by humans. And then probably about eight years ago, um, a new dean showed up in the faculty and said, oh, so Peter, photosynthesis guy, what do you think about biofuels? And I went, mm, I think they're a croc. And he said, oh, if you think they're a croc, then that means you actually know something about it and you're the perfect person to solve the problem. I sat there and thought about it. I thought, what? And I thought he was actually right because I had an opinion about what was wrong with it and I had the opportunity to come up with solutions. So from there on, I turned marine science damage and understanding what's wrong with the planet uh, to how can I find solutions to fix the planet. And so that's when the biotech work started and that's where we got to us having a chat talking about piping hot. Yeah, and there's lots of good seagrass off the northern beaches as well around Manly and Shelley and, and whatnot. Well, we've got to keep it and we've got to keep it because, you know, seagrasses, mangroves and salt marsh are our best carbon sinks on the planet. They hold the most amount of carbon because they've got anoxic, uh, you know, sediment, smelly sediment, all of the carbon below that doesn't return to the atmosphere. So seagrasses, they're awesome. We need more of them. We've killed a lot of them over the years. Um, they're slow to grow back. 
but yeah, we need seagrasses all on our coastal systems. Are they going to survive a, a warming ocean or will they adapt quickly enough? Um, yeah, no, no, no. Surprisingly, so there's, so there's some, some tests that, that society's been running in, in local lagoons. So we've got lagoons up and down the east coast of Australia where there's coal-fired power plants. They put their warm water that cool their, their, their turbines into those lagoons. And so those seagrasses have been growing in five degree warmer water for the last 50 years. So oh, wow. seagrasses, if there's a gradual change in temperature, can adapt to it. Doesn't mean that the rest of the ecosystem adapts to it. Doesn't mean that the carbon storage is, is, is as good, but a warmer planet you're probably not going to lose your seagrasses as quickly as you'll lose other marine species. Okay. And so how, how, I've just kind of pulled that thread. How did, how did biofuels work? They work more than just growing seaweed and burning them, I presume. Is that if, oh yeah. 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 So, so what the, the trick is, is to actually, um, to grow biomass. So algal biomass, usually you don't grow seaweeds, you grow microalgae. So we've got two types of, um, algae you've got the stuff on the beach that's as big as your hand and it flops around in, on the on the intertidal and that's your seaweeds then you've got the microalgae and they're they're you can't see them with the native with the with naked eye you have to look at them under a microscope it's the microalgae that have lots and lots of oils in them so the seaweeds have generally got mostly sugar in them they're they're made of sugar compounds um, whereas the microalgae has got the oil and you can convert oil from a, an alga into petroleum-like um, fuels and you can make drop-in fuels uh, that will replace fossil-derived um, petrol. You can make the equivalent, you make jet fuel, you can make all kinds of different fuels using oil and algae, microalgae is one of those sources. That's fascinating. So it's kind of still a, a traditional style fuel in that you... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's drop-in. It's, it's not a different... So it uses an internal combustion engine. So this is part of the problem is you put algae-derived biofuel into an engine, internal combustion, you get carbon dioxide as an exhaust gas. So the, the, the cycle of of carbon comes from the atmosphere, goes into the algae, goes into the fuel and goes back into the atmosphere again. So it's not negative carbon, it's just carbon neutral. So we're not fixing the planet by making biofuels, we're just reducing our dependence on a fossil source of carbon. Piping Hot collaboration came through the ocean. So, so we, so there's a common uh, mission between Piping Hot and C3. Piping Hot, as a surf brand, has has got a very, very strong, sustainable vision for their company and their products. And the Climate Change Cluster, we have strong visions for our involvement with industry to transform industries so that 
basically industry um, provides society with a way to fix the planet. So the two organisations have an aligned uh, mission and there was uh, ocean-based conferences where we, we crossed paths. And, um, yeah, we've, we're really pleased to have um, a supporting role working together with Piping Hot to help them develop new sustainable fabrics and textiles for, for surfwear. And do those textiles come from seaweed as well? We will be. We will be. So, so we're going to. So, textiles currently are mostly fossil derived. So they're petrochemically derived. They're synthetic. We're hoping to take some of those fossil derived components and replace it with seaweed derived components. Okay. So, do you? Think, I mean, does the future involve? seaweed farms essentially is that is that what we're looking at off absolutely. the coast yeah. absolutely so to, to to hit the scale the piping hot needs we're going to have to have very large seaweed farms in in a lot of countries around the world so seaweeds are awesome organisms for capturing carbon now i described um blue carbon before where the carbon goes into the plant and then it gets stuck below an anoxic layer of mud, seaweeds don't do that. Seaweeds generally are growing on rocky substrates, so they grow on a reef, and there's no, no soil, no sediment below a, a kelp forest, but they still grow really, really fast and they take a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere. So what I'm hoping to do with companies like Piping Hot is to develop products where a farmer can grow huge amounts of, of seaweed, kelps. We harvest it, take compounds out of that, turn it into products and put it into our society, whether that's clothes, building materials, flooring materials, anywhere where we can stick a carbon source into our lifestyles that holds it for tens of years means that, that carbon's out of the atmosphere. That carbon's not... Um, being consumed. We haven't got an alga or a plant to capture it and then we burn it or we do something to it to put the carbon back in the atmosphere. This is going to help us. So this is carbon capture and use. We want to use seaweeds or microalgae to capture the carbon and make products that society needs. And fabric and textiles is absolutely a really important place that we can stick carbon and it's so it's sequestering carbon but it's also not pulling it out of the ground either like it's, you're not making it exactly. out of petroleum exactly exactly it's it's reducing our dependence and reducing our use of fossil carbon sources and turning it into an atmospheric carbon source so we're reducing our atmospheric carbon without increasing our our use of fossil so it's, it's a double benefit to our our global carbon footprint and I guess it, I guess maybe it's not there yet. I don't know, but uh, they, 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 they've got to be pretty robust textiles, right? Otherwise, they'll fall apart. You can't, you know. People say they want biodegradable stuff, and you go, well, maybe. Well, <laughs> do you do you want your swimwear to to biodegrade while you're having a swim? That's Probably right. Not. Yeah. So so there's there's plastics that we make. Uh, we make both biodegradable plastics and permanent plastics. And biodegradable plastics generally it'll be the films. So if you make a film. 
I hope we start moving away from single-use plastics, but if we have a plastic that has got a, sh a shelf life of a certain period of time that we can compost it, then bioplastics absolutely put them in the in compost heap or put them in a, a um, council-based recycling program and you can um, decompose that that's bioplastic but other bioplastics they, they should function the same as a petrochemical plastic and they are a permanent plastic that that doesn't break down one of the real things that we've got to be careful of is the microplastics and making sure that so an algal derived bioplastic um, if it's biodegradable won't break down into microplastics um, but if there's a petrochemical component to it it'll still make microplastics. So it's, there's a lot of things that this is really important for the ocean that we stop having plastic pollution and also microplastic pollution. And they're, they're, they're two sources of damage to, to the marine system that we've got to be really, really careful of. Are they likely to be any more recyclable than petrochemical plastics? Um, if they're not blended, then they're very, very recyclable. Um, and I think this is something we're going to have to go forward in the future to make sure that our what we ask as consumers is a single style of plastic. So a lot of times a coffee cup or um, any of the plastic films can have multiple layers of plastics and each of those plastics have got a different function. It could be UV resistance, could be oxygen non-permeability to stop degradation. It could, it could be waterproof. So every time we ask a plastic to do a function, you're probably going to have to be having a different type of plastic that'll do that. And so you're not going to have a single type of plastic in a lot of these functions. But I think it comes back to us as consumers, if we understand that having a simpler choice in what we ask of a plastic, it's more likely going to be a single type and that can be easily recycled. And you hear about, you occasionally hear about the, the ocean as a way of sequestering carbon, but I guess it's probably, it's not talked about too much. Is it a magic solution, do you think? I mean, I've heard of plankton and, and solutions around that. Are there, is, is this... Uh, plankton, plankton capture huge amounts of carbon from, from the atmosphere. Um, so carbon and oxygen, so, so every second breath you take has come from phytoplankton that have made the oxygen. When they make oxygen, they take in CO2. So there's huge activity of phytoplankton in the ocean for drawing down carbon. But the problem is, as soon as they draw the carbon into their cells, um, a fish will eat them, another algal will eat them, Bacteria will break them down and that carbon's back in the atmosphere within a day or two. So it's not long-term storage. And to store phytoplankton's carbon, that algal cell has to die and sink hundreds of metres, thousands of metres to the ocean floor. And you've got to make sure that, that that little cell hasn't been broken down by the bacteria. On the way down, it's going to be broken down. And so the chances of it hitting the sea floor and being buried is is remote. That's that's very interesting. So I've, I've heard of plankton being talked about as the magic solution. We 
throw some iron in the ocean or something and magic happens, but I didn't. It's got to sink. But it's got to sink. Okay. It's got to sink. It's, it's not just circling around. And yeah, that's what happens when you do most of the enrichment experiments. You, you enrich, you have an algal bloom, lots of carbon goes into it, but not a lot of it sinks to the bottom. And I'm interested. So, do you do you still surf? Do you still swim to get out and look at sea grasses? Yeah, I, I, so I, I do. Whenever I'm I'm by the coast, I always have to have a look for for the sea grasses. I look for for the kelps and seaweeds. I don't surf anymore. I haven't surfed for probably twenty years. Um, I, I I had a choice when I, I used to live on the northern beaches. Um, I was able to go for a surf before work. Um, and then when I moved to the inner city, I went, oh, okay. Getting to the eastern suburbs was tough. Not so um, easy. And so I, I, I run these days. So that's, that's, that's my alternative for, for surfing. But, um, yeah, still a soft spot. Uh, it's kind of similar to me, actually. It's, it's a fair bit harder to get to a pool or the coast than, yeah. than it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go, you, when you're close to it, you've got to enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Is it your work? I've seen the um, the work with Algie and Young Henrys in the tech lab. Is that is that your work as well? Yeah, yeah, we're doing that as well. So, so that that's a it's a great opportunity to to demonstrate carbon capture and use. So, a brewery is one of the examples of the hard to abate industries. So, um, cement production, um, beer brewing, any of these these systems where you make a lot of CO two, you got to capture that CO two. So working with Young Henrys for the last few years has been awesome, uh, where we're, we're capturing the carbon. And recently it was announced that we're also working with them to um, help with methane abatement with cattle. So we're, we're looking at some really good solutions there. And, um, yeah, Young Henrys is an awesome another, – another company that's got a shared mission, same way as Piping Hot – Young Henry's absolutely gets sustainability and they absolutely are looking for how their brand, their beer can be um, produced in a sustainable way. And that really, for a university to work with these kind of partners really um, is so much easier because you know that there's an honesty in the the partner's um, interest in your work and they see the same goal. It's so interesting. I mean, it, it's obvious, but I hadn't thought it through till you were saying it just then that, that CO2 is, is kind of part of the point of beer, beer, beer brewing, right? Like you make alcohol Absolutely. and you make CO2. It, it happens. There's no other way yeah. of doing it. So it was, it was interesting. Some of the brewers, so as far as an industry to work with, to teach uh, a, a people that are working in an industry how to grow algae, brewers are the best because they actually understand plumbing, they understand electricity, and they understand how to keep an organism alive. So they are the best people to, to teach how to grow algae, whereas any other industry doesn't get keeping an organism, a single-cell organism alive, and they, don't, you know, they understand the plumbing, the liquids. So it was really easy to work with their brewers to teach them how to keep the algae alive. Oh, that's so fascinating. And so what, what's next? Where do you think, 
I mean, you've you've got your irons in many fires, but but where would you like to head with with a lot of this work? What I'm what I'm really what, what my big horizon is 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 the circular economy. What I think is the biggest challenge, and and I think it's it's getting the story out. I, I've described to you two industry partners how we're we're taking we're replacing. Um, fossil-derived carbon and we're putting it into industry. But I think the real way that we're going to get to scale is when we start having somebody's waste going into an algae system to make a product that then goes into society and we keep circular um, use of nutrients. Because one of the big problems with algae, whether or not it's seaweeds or microalgae, is not the carbon that we want to take out of the atmosphere, it's the nitrogen and the phosphorus. Where are we going to get all? So if we're going to fix climate change, which, which I believe we can, we can strip CO2 out of the atmosphere. We need huge amounts of nitrogen and phosphorus. And the planet's limited in phosphorus. Nitrogen, it's all around in the air. We just got to get it out of the air and into, into the soil. But phosphorus is limited. Now, one of the biggest sources of phosphorus that we're wasting is sewage and waste. We don't want to waste a valuable resource. So I want to see circularity, whether it's food food waste, human waste, animal waste. I want to see those streams being used to make algal products. Now, how would the people listening to this podcast react if their clothes were made from algae? But what if the algae had been fed with sewage? Are we comfortable with that? Can, you know, obviously my shirt's not going to smell of sewage, but where did I get the nitrogen and phosphorus to grow that, that seaweed or that microalgae? Would I cope with it? Um, I'm not suggesting that we're making food out of it, but what if we made uh, a carpet? What if I made a, a wall panel that had sewage-derived nitrogen, phosphorus and algae and that carbon was locked up in the panel and, and we started to fix the, plant, the planet using that? Is circular economy is going to work? That's that's fascinating. I mean, I think, I mean, we drink recycled water, or at least exactly. I'm not I'm not so sure about how much in Australia we do, but I know in around around the world that we do. So around the globe, yes, yes. So yeah. you you'd think that that it might that it might take hold, but you know the way you spill it out. So is it as simple as? I mean, I'm not sure what the chemistry of isolating phosphorus from sewage is, but oh, it, that's easy. It's getting getting two companies to sit beside each other so that you're not having the the nitrogen and phosphorus in another state and you've got to put it on a truck and ship it down to, to New South Wales. How do we get two companies beside each other that can share CO2, share nitrogen and phosphorus and make products? And so we take waste from one company or one industry and put it into another. That's, that's, that's the next challenge for, for politics, for society, for industries, how do we get circular and how do we share our waste and share our products so that we can make the planet more sustainable? We can strip more CO2 out of the atmosphere, we can make more stuff, but we use our waste. It's fascinating. I mean, I'm sure you've brainstormed a million things, but, you know, we've got little micro-generators, solar farms and all the rest of it. I wonder whether, you know, we eventually will have something we plug into communal sewage systems and I don't know, right? Could be. It's exactly where it it could start. It could start in communities and, you know, you you could have 
a CO2 um, emitter, you could have a generator, you, yeah, you could have a diesel generator. You could strip your CO2 out of the emissions from that diesel generator and you have waste. It could be, it could be agricultural waste, it could be pig, piggery waste, it could be cattle waste. Um, and you use that as your energy source and you make a, a, a bioplastic. So we're not using, because I don't want to compete with agriculture for nitrogen and phosphorus. Nitrogen and phosphorus should be made, should be kept aside for making food for humans, not food for, for cattle and not food for other, and definitely not food or not being used as nitrogen and phosphorus to make carbon plastics. So we've got to grow the cells. And so that, that's my next challenge, but I'm, I'm working on, on getting solutions and getting industries and, industry and the government to, to push that forward. Do you think that'll work quick enough to actively pull CO2 out of the atmosphere in a, in a kind of meaningful way? It has to way? because the, 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 the urgency is there. Um, the planet knows what we need to do. The technology is, is there. And I think once we realise that we can't waste our nitrogen and phosphorus on just stripping CO2 out of the atmosphere, we need to use that for food, I think we'll start to, to get our heads around that. So I think it's not far away, but it's just the next step in, in communities, societies, um, expectation and drive for how to fix this. Because, you know, society is, is what's driving the solutions to climate change. Um, many political systems are reacting and not leading. And I think we, society, for, for me, society has been pulling products and they've been driving industries. The, the need for bioplastics is massive. That's been in, around for four years. Um, the, the demand for biodegradable bioplastics has been grossly exceeded by the technology to make it. So society has done exactly the right thing. They've said to manufacturers, we want sustainable biodegradable plastics. Where is it? And industry's gone. They've had to look around and talk to the universities and say, who's got some technology that can that is ready or what level of investments need to get it ready? Thank you so much to Professor Peter Ralph from UTS for squeezing in half an hour to chat with me in a very busy academic day about their work with piping hot to develop textiles. If you'd like any more information on anything you've heard today, then please get over to the website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. Thanks very much. My name is Mark West. I'll catch you next time on The Pod.